what a joy it is to sing those truths that we sang a minute ago, uh, to sing those songs, to, to lift our voices in praise, to uh, <clears throat> lift the cries of our heart in unison as we contemplate who our God is and all that He's done, and, and then to come together and lift our concerns for our brothers and sisters who are part of our church family, but also all the things that are going on in our church. And so I'm just thankful for our time of worship through song and prayer and giving and and now as we enter into this time of worship through the Word this morning, as we, as we think about who God is, what His Word says about that, uh, it's just it's a good day when we can do that together. Um, well, this morning, uh, last Sunday, we began a series, Mark did, entitled The Cross Changes Everything. And, and today we're going to continue on in that. And uh, that song we sang, that Matt Redman song, The Cross Changes Everything, we're kind of working through the chorus line by line, and each line is, is kind of a theme for our week. And this week we're looking at a love that sets the captive free. What does that mean? A love that sets the captive free. And, and to understand how this is true in light of the gospel, we're going to look at Luke chapter 4. So if you have your Bible with me this morning, or, or if it's on an app on your phone, you want to flip and scroll with me, that would be fantastic. Um, we're going to be reading from the CSB. There's some hard copies in the back if you'd like one. Uh, Mark will get you one as well. Um, and as we approach our passage this morning, I, I want to explain a bit of the context, which is always an important thing, right? Uh, Luke's gospel is recounting the life of Jesus. Think back with me to the Luke, uh, gospel of Luke. Uh, chapters 1 and 2 are about the events surrounding the birth and the childhood of, of Jesus. And then chapter 3 fast forwards all the way to Jesus in adulthood. And we see Jesus uh, go and he's baptized by John the Baptist at the River Jordan. And then chapter 4, this chapter begins with the Spirit of God leading Jesus out into the wilderness to fast and to pray. And then he is going to be tested and tempted by Satan. And Jesus comes through that experience victorious. He comes through that experience having... Uh, defeated every bit of the temptation that was placed in front of him, and he comes to that experience having uh, spent time with the Father. And so that's where our passage this morning begins. We're going to begin all the way down in verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. Uh, so read along with me, Luke 4, starting in verse 14. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. May the Lord bless the reading of his word today. It's funny, uh, several of my friends think I am absolutely ridiculous when it comes to one specific aspect of my life and one specific issue, and that is the issue of spoilers. I do not like spoilers. Uh, if there's a film or a television show that I am interested in, I, 
I do not want to see or know under any circumstances any details pertaining to the plot of that film or that television show. Uh, I, I don't want to even want to even have a hint of seeing a spoiler. And I have friends who will search out, who are the exact opposite of me, they will search out on the internet and find every scrap of every rumor they can find about everything, even though the, the script hasn't been written for the film yet. There's still, what are the rumors that that's going to happen in this, the plot of the film? I am not that way. I, I, to me, the perfect scenario is I walk into the cinema, I sit in my seat with my popcorn and my Coke, and I am absolutely surprised by what is going to happen. I know I'm going to be interested in the film. I'm just, I'm waiting for this. It's the ultimate sense of delayed gratification to me. I don't want to know what's going on. Uh, I can have a basic understanding of what the film's about, but I just don't want to know any details. And there are some friends who just can't contain themselves. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. The conversation goes like them. Have you seen such and such? And I'm like, oh, no, 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 man. I really don't want to know, so don't tell me. And then they say, but I heard that the main character dies at the end. And I'm like, oh, ruined, <laughs> spoiled, you know? The film is now ruined. And as frustrating as that can be, apparently sometimes spoilers can be a good thing. And I think based on this passage, Jesus is firmly, firmly in that camp. He is all about spoilers. He's all about telling about what, the, what is going to happen in the end of the story from the beginning. This passage is the ultimate spoiler. I mean, not only is, is it spoiler, it is an original to Jesus. The prophet Isaiah wrote this centuries before. I mean, so really, mega spoiler there. <laughs> this is what's going to happen. And I find it interesting where this passage takes place. Verse 16 it tells us that Jesus, after traveling around preaching Galilee, he has now made his way home to Nazareth, his hometown, where he's grown up. He spent his childhood and his youth. This is his town. It's the place where he grew up. He has millions of memories of every little place, every little street, every little shop. He knows exactly where uh, all the people live. He knows the stories of the lives of folks there. Nazareth, his hometown. Uh, it's also the place where people knew him best. I mean, you're, you're really known in your hometown, aren't you? Especially if it's a small town. <laughs> people know who you are. They know all the stories of your life. There's no like moving to a new place. You have a fresh start. No, no, no. When people have seen you watch up, grow up and they've watched you and observed your life, they know the ins and the outs. They know the stories, infamous and famous. So, uh, yeah, they know the history there. If ever there was a place Jesus had been watched and his life had been observed, it was here in Nazareth. Not only that, but look at verse 16 with me. Read along with me. He says, He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. This is not only Jesus' hometown, but this is his home synagogue. Uh, that phrase, as usual, he entered the, the, the synagogue, doesn't just mean that it was normal practice for him to go to the synagogue on Sabbath. It, it was, but there's something a little more weighty to that. This is, as usual, as he spent his days growing up in this town, he went into, back into this synagogue. He's there amongst people who know who, who he is. And apparently... They, they've invited him to come and speak. That phrase, though, where he had been brought up, as usual, he entered. This, this ties to this place of familiarity. And, and this is important this morning because these were the people who, had, had seen, who had, he had seen on Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, who he'd sang songs with, 
who he'd heard the teaching of the scriptures with, who he'd spent time praying with. These were his people. So that's the context for where Jesus makes this pronouncement amongst his own people. Uh, and it's here that these people who knew him his whole life that Jesus chooses to make this demonstration about himself. Let's exam examine exactly what Jesus is declaring. Uh, let's look at verses 17 and 19. It says, the scroll, of one of the, uh, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, now as a traveling rabbi, is given the honor of teaching in his home synagogue. He uses that time by opening to all places what we know as Isaiah 60, 61, and he reads from it. But look carefully at how this is worded in verse 17. He found the place where it was written. In Jesus' day, the Bible didn't exist the way we have it here. It wasn't bound in one book. It didn't have a leather or faux leather cover to it. It didn't have a hardback cover. The Bible, the Old Testament Torah, was written, tediously written by scribes, copied meticulously by scribes on scrolls. So you had a scroll and you would roll out to where you're going to go. I mean, and this is large amounts of writing, so these scrolls are really big. So Jesus... He's given the prophet Isaiah, and he's scrolling. I mean, 61 chapters in our Bibles, and he's scrolling, and he's scrolling. And they're like, the, the, the tension is building. And here he gets to where we have this passage in Isaiah 61. I mean, that's crazy. There, I mean, there's no number system. There's no verses. He's just scrolling, 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 paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. And so the point is, I, this is not a coincidence, he, he, it wasn't like he walked up to the podium and there it is writ out for him. Oh, I guess I'll go with this passage today. Jesus intentionally, specifically went to this passage that day. It was on his part. There was, there was intentionality behind him reading this passage of Scripture that day. And he found the place where it was written, is what the Bible says. Jesus opens and he reads this from this prophetic book, which had been written 700 years before the life of Jesus. And, he, and then he reads it and then he sits down and basically says, this is about me. And everybody's astonished by this. Apparently, that's how Jesus began a longer time of teaching. That's what we can take away from this is he began by saying, this is about me. And he began to talk, teach. And man, I would have loved to see what he, what he had to say after that. But that's what we have. And we only get the opening line. Uh, but the people were astonished. And as we think about our theme today, a love that sets the captives free, we need to understand in this passage what exactly Jesus is saying as he quotes from Isaiah. Like a lot of Old Testament pictures, illustrations, and prophecies, this passage from Isaiah had a meaning that was applicable to the moment where Isaiah was, where he lived. It was applicable to that moment 700 years ago before Jesus, but it was also applicable to a future moment, a future reality in a different way. In that moment, it was pointing to Israel's return from Babylon. They had been in captivity. They had been in slavery, and they had been crying out to God. And Isaiah is writing that it won't always be this way. God is going to deliver them from slavery. 
He was going to restore Israel and let her be his people and in his place once again. But it also had an application that would point to a distant future. It's this deeper application that Jesus is revealing to the people of Nazareth, as we see in verse 21 when he tells them, Today as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. This is the first time, but not the only time, Jesus prays something, says something about the Old Testament is about him. And think about this. Twice at the end of Luke's gospel, in Luke 24, Jesus says something to this effect. After the crucifixion, Jesus encounters a couple of disciples as they're walking on the road to Emmaus. And he begins, at the end of the story, begins to talk about and reveal how passage after passage of the Old Testament was about him. He's pointing it out over and over and over again, every page of how it's all pertaining to him. And later on, just before he ascends back into heaven... Uh, we see that he explains to his disciples that his life was about fulfilling all that was written in the law and the prophets. So, though it may be that Isaiah 61 was immediately applicable to Israel in their slavery in Babylon, Jesus is the ultimate application to the passage. But that doesn't mean that these people understand that reality. Jesus takes a passage that's always been taught. About, think about this. He takes a passage that's always been taught as a passage being relating to national pride. This is our national identity, our national heritage. And he reveals that there's actually a deeper, better meaning, a bigger truth, much bigger. Let's dive into that in verses 18 and 19. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the mind, to set the oppressed free. Isaiah's passage that we now know is actually referring to Jesus starts off by saying that the Holy Spirit of God has come upon Jesus. A few minutes ago, remember I said that Jesus, he'd gone, he'd been baptized by John the Baptist. When that passage, it says when he comes up out of the water that the Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. He's been empowered by the Spirit of God there in Luke 3.22. Therefore, Jesus is now speaking and teaching not just in his own authority as Messiah. That'd be enough. But he's not just speaking as the Messiah. He's also speaking and teaching through the power of the Spirit. Everything he says is through his reliance upon the empowering work of the Spirit of God. Even more, we see that the Spirit has a focused purpose behind this empowerment. In verse 18, he says, He, the Spirit, has anointed me to preach good news. Now, we know that Jesus, we know from the story, and we always, we, I think we, we tend to jump to the end of the story. Jesus come to live a perfect life, to die in our place as a sacrifice, as a substitute, and, and then to come back to life. But all on the way, leading up to that point, Jesus is announcing a message. He's announcing a message that says there's a better vision of the future than what we have right now. There's a better outcome ahead of us. There's a hope ahead of us if we will grab onto it. We know from the beginning of the story of Scripture that God has been weaving. He's been working throughout the history of humanity to bring about reconciliation and redemption and restoration of all things. Life as we knew it in the Garden of Eden. Perfect harmonious, God-glorifying life was utterly fractured and broken because of the rebellion and treason of humanity. Since the day that we first were first rebellious, God has been promising that life in this world would not always be broken. Now in this passage, we're hearing the answer to all the hints and promises throughout history. Jesus, the Messiah, has come at the moment to preach good news. 
And that word preach in the original language is, is, quote, to preach or herald especially divine truth. That's what that means. I've come to preach good news, to herald divine truth. What divine truth was Jesus heralding? That slavery as we know it is going to come to an end. That the love of God was going to cause him to do some radical things in order to set the captives free. And to fully understand this, we have to, in our minds, go back and put ourselves in the Garden of Eden while things were perfect, perfect, could not get any better perfect. Life, and think about this, no conflict, <laughs> relationships, there's no miscommunication, perfect. Work, life, rest, balance, perfect. Pain, sorrow, struggle, illness, sickness, perfect. It was then, in that place, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And the, the biblical word that's used is the word sin. They sinned against God. And the sad part about this is they didn't just act alone for themselves. Their actions affected the whole human race. Now, our very nature is such that we are first and foremost devoted to ourselves. We pursue ourselves first. We glorify and we seek the glorification of ourselves first. But we were created and designed not for ourselves. We were created, created and designed in that perfect place to pursue God and to glorify God. Now we pursue something far less and that we were made for. Uh, this rebellion, not only did it change our nature, but it also caused a separation, a rift between us and God. Now, you think about this, because we saw this video a few weeks ago about the holiness of God, because God is so holy, He's so perfectly righteous and other than us, He is incapable of associating with anything or anyone who is not holy. So put it, to put it in a way that we can understand the depths of how dire our situation is, the Bible uses a few metaphors for us. The Apostle Paul writes this in, in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, that we are spiritually blind. We can't even see the reality of our situation, nor can we see the remedy to the problem. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, that, but if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. That's us apart from Christ. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 34, uh, that truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So we're blind and we're slaves. We're in absolute bondage and chains to our rebellion. It's like idolatry to ourselves is addicting. And we cannot, we cannot stop. We, we keep going back to the broken well of pursuing ourselves. We're addicted to it. It's, it's what we want most. Idolatry. I mean, it's spirit, uh, blindness and, and slavery. Those, those two things sound familiar from our passage, don't they? Look back at our passage in 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to what? Proclaim release to who? The captives. And to do what? Recover the sight of the blind. That's some, 
right there, who we are. Jesus came and began to preach about what he was ultimately going to accomplish. He proclaimed good news to the poor. Though this passage, instant application, referred to Israel and their plight and their material poverty, Jesus has taken this and he's pointed it to those who are spiritually poor. This is not to say we shouldn't care for the impoverished around us. It's not to say we shouldn't care for those who are in need. But the deepest need of our lives, the deepest need, is getting the cure of our spiritual poverty. We are destitute in our sinfulness before God. Next, Jesus has come to proclaim or to herald release to the captives. Apart from being in relationship with Christ, you and I are caught as captives in our own sin. We are in bondage. The terminology that's used in the Greek hints at the word picture of a prisoner of war. That's interesting, isn't it? We have been captured by the enemy. And, and though we know, we just read that passage in, in 2 Corinthians 4, we know there's a God of this world who opposes the one true God. I used to say God of this world, lowercase g, who opposes the one true capital G. Uh, there is an enemy who is actively trying to, de- to de- deceive and blind the people to the truth. His name is Satan. But, and even though he's actively working to, to, to separate those from the truth who do not have the truth and to, to, to bring those of us who are in relationship with Christ back down into sin and to shame, the, the issue is, uh, and I want to be clear about this, Satan does not enslave us. We do that to ourselves willingly. We pursue ourselves, we pursue sin willingly. That is not done to us. <laughs> Satan deceives, yes. He tries to entrap and ensnare, yes. But ultimately, we are the ones who seek out slavery on our own. We choose to go our own way instead of going God's way. And we're captured as prisoners of war in our sin as a result. But the good news, there is good news, is that Jesus is announcing that release has now come. There is a rescuer who will change everything. Jesus is that rescuer. He comes to set the captive free and the oppressed free. And that word release in the passage is translated from a Greek word that literally means letting go and release. But here's what I find fascinating. That word can also be translated to mean pardon or complete forgiveness. Same word. (laughs) To set the captive free or to give pardon, to give complete forgiveness. Forgiveness. Jesus Christ came to the earth announcing that freedom, pardon, and complete forgiveness has come. Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life, also that we, that he could be worthy enough before God to be a substitute for you and me. He died, taking the penalty of my sin and your sin, so that we don't have to be separated. That's good news. That's good news that Jesus is heralding today. Look back at verse 19 with me for a moment. Verse 19 says, He came to do those things and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All of this description of where we are spiritually comes to a head in verse 19. Uh, And and it's funny, here in this verse, Jesus has stopped actually quoting from Isaiah 61. He's read from Isaiah 61, and then he quotes from a few chapters before that in Isaiah 58, and he puts them together. Jesus can do that. I mean, he wrote the, the Bible so he can use it how he wants. Uh, And he has read from Isaiah 61, and at the end of the reading, he takes from an earlier passage, and he tacks it on just to bring emphasis to the depths of what he's communicating, to help this picture be really uh, crystal clear. 
And in verse 19, Jesus is referring to something called the year of Jubilee. And if you've been keeping up with us in the Read Scripture app, or even if you're behind, you, you may have gotten to Leviticus 25, where uh, this is described and played out how every 50 years, God called the people of God to have a year of celebration, a special year that the end of uh, at the end of seven Sabbath years, <laughs> 49 years, uh, on the 50th year, they would be a special year starting on the Day of Atonement, the day that the high priest would go in and make a sacrifice for the sin of all the people of God. Starting on that day, there'd be a year-long celebration, and in that year, every debt from the Jewish people, if, if you're in debt, it is forgiven. If you've lost pro uh, property because of the debt, it is restored back to you. If you've gone into indentured servitude, slavery to uh, another Jewish person, you are now set free. It's the year of Jubilee that came once in a generation. And, and if that day came, I mean, when you, and as that day approaches, you were thrilled at the prospect of it. Everyone looked forward to this day because it was a reset of everything in the country. It was a reset and a restoration to what God had given them as they in, in, get, uh, got the inheritance of the promised land. It was built into their culture that every 50 years there'd be a reset. Now, this, this is crazy that Jesus says this about himself, and then he says, the year of Jubilee has now come. I've come to set the captive free. I've come to give sight to the blind. The year of Jubilee is here. He's telling us that this practice that, centuries, that happened centuries before, way before Jesus' day, was a picture of what Jesus would do for humanity. That He is the true year of Jubilee. He is the reset that we need. He is the one who's going to bring restoration that we need. Jesus is the one who cancels out the debt of sin. He's the one who sets free those in bondage. He's the one who's, who restores what has been taken from us. Jesus is the better year of Jubilee. Today, this passage is speaking and is asking us to examine our, our lives. And it asks us this question, what are we pursuing? What are we pursuing? Are we pursuing ourselves? Are we pursuing God? What is best? What do we value most in our lives? Do we value ourselves or do we value God? Have you trusted in Jesus as the way to be right with God? He offers freedom from a bondage you didn't even know you were in. He offers restoration of relationship with God, to be in fellowship with Almighty God. Only God is the one who knows you best. He is perfect in every way. The one who knows you best desires relationship with you. Jesus is proclaiming that there is good news. Will you listen to what he's saying? Uh, Christian, this morning, there's, there's so much more we can take away from this passage, and I wish we had time. Um, I'll just say this, that Jesus quotes Isaiah saying that the Spirit of God has anointed me to preach good news. I would love to unpack that Spirit of God and anointing and this, the depth. Of, there's a whole lot of rich stuff there. But I'll say this, if, if you are a follower of Jesus, we know Christ has set us free and we are no longer slaves. We sing that, don't we? I'm no longer slave to fear. Remember that? Yeah. We sing that all the time. We are no longer oppressed. We are no longer blind. We are free in Christ. 
The Bible says that He has now given us the Spirit to live within us. So even though we're not the one who's going to set the captive, we don't do the free, we don't give freedom, we don't restore sight, Christ does that. We are now following after Christ, doing the same thing. We're here to proclaim that the news is here. Good news is here. Freedom is here. Bondage is done. Blindness is gone. We can walk in liberty. We can walk with sight. We can walk having the year of Jubilee being our life, the reset we needed. Essentially, we're called to follow his example in the passage. Jesus is the rescuer. He's the better Jubilee. He lavished love upon us. He saved us. He redeemed us. And now he calls us to follow after him, proclaiming the year of the favor of the Lord. When I started, I mentioned that I really hate spoilers. But when it comes to the gospel, Christ has called you and me to be that friend who can't help but share the details about the end of the story. To be that annoying friend who just lets all the truth go. We don't hold back. We let everything go. We tell all the details. We tell the good news. We tell the story that, you know what, the main character in the story did die but he also came back to life. He came to set the captive free, to give sight to the blind, to announce that the favor, the year of the favor of the Lord is here. So be excited about the gospel because there is freedom in it. It has changed you and me and we should not be able to but help ourselves to, to share that the main character is Jesus and he desires a relationship. Let's pray. Father, pray that today that you would burn a passion in our hearts for the gospel, that you would help us and equip us to share it with our friends, with our family, with all that we encounter. Help us to be faithful, to share that you are the true year of the Jubilee, Jesus. Amen.